Back to another episode of Confessions of an Ex-Mormon. I'm your host, Allie, and today on the episode we have my friend Isaac Johnson. Today we get philosophical, and it was... This episode was really, I think, pretty transformative for me. Uh, We speak a lot about how Isaac views faith and spirituality and how he sees it in a really different light these days, and um, it has a, a really beautiful feel to it. Isaac's a very eloquent speaker, and I'm so grateful f- to have him on the podcast today. So um, I really think you're going to enjoy today's episode. So without further ado, uh, let's get started. Hi, Isaac. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Allie. Thank you so much for having me on. I think it's such a fun thing that you're doing. Uh, I'm I'm really impressed with everything that you've been doing, and I think it's so fun to be able to reconnect. Thanks. Me too. So, um, listeners, this is my friend Isaac. We grew up uh, kind of around each other at the same in the same neighborhood, and ended up um, in the same singles ward. So, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's um, it's like <laughs> when they try to get you married um they put everybody young and single uh from ages what is it 18 to 30 in in the same church yeah so um once you turn 18 you can kind of go hang out with people your own age and then um it's really fun um made a lot of good friends there and and isaac was one of them so isaac and i haven't spoken in a few years though yeah, it's Have been we? a while. I think uh, I think the last time I saw you was probably at Vasa. <laughs> Vasa, yes. <laughs> <I admit it. laughs> uh, for my European listeners, that is the gym. So, <laughs> <laughs> which may not surprise anyone that knows Allie. Right. <laughs> been getting into that a lot lately. Um, so i I wanted Isaac today on the show because I think his his faith journey is. Um, really, it it sounded intriguing to me. So Isaac reached out to me when he heard about my podcast and told me, well, I mean, you can tell the listeners, um, but uh, essentially that he was exploring outside of the church as well, but seems to be a little bit more in line with Christianity, whereas I've gone more of the uh, agnostic route. So um, I guess my... Let's start with uh, where exactly was the turning point for you? Like, um, or maybe maybe we'll start with early, even earlier. Like, how how did you grow up in the church? Did you were you born into the faith? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good place to start for me because it leads into why it would be hard for me to identify a real turning point. And so, I think going back to some of the early days would be important here. Uh, I grew up in a split household of sorts. Uh, they were both, my mom and dad were both Christian, um, but my mom was, was very devoutly LDS, and my dad uh, was different kinds of fundamentalist, Protestant, Baptist 
Presbyterian depend on the year, I think. Uh, okay. And but basically, in some any Christian religion that is deeply believing that anybody in the LDS faith is going to hell, and that oh. created quite the dynamic uh, in the household when religion was ever brought up, because no matter what you chose growing up, one parent was absolutely certain that you're going to hell, and oh God, it, it created an, an interesting dynamic and and somewhat yeah. of some some chaotic energy and that kind of thing. I'm sure. Uh, and and it had an interesting effect, I think, because a lot of the times, uh, you know, as you may surmise from from our time together, uh, I, I usually ended up um, going with my mom and kind of going down that route. And and as such, you know, from an early age, was very much uh, exposed and and constantly hearing all of the reasons why that faith was so terrible and all the horrible things about it. And every, every possible thing you can dig up about that faith was, you know, from the time I'm 10, 11 years old being thrown at me and and being told, this is why I'm such a terrible individual and that kind of thing for following this faith. How interesting because, you know, and and for the listeners here, we're from Utah, which is the kind of the headquarters of Mormonism. And uh, I personally didn't experience really any of that. There's this kind of this bubble where a lot of times yeah. you make friends with people who are like members, right? And then you never yeah. really hear the bad stuff. So as I've gotten older, I've started to hear weird stuff about like the history of Mormonism and right. uh, the beginnings of the church, but I never grew up with any of that. So I'm sure that was a whole, whole other entity. Yeah. And I think it had a fascinating impact on me in that what it, one of the things that it forced me to do was to sort of reconcile at a very early age, I think, am I going to be able to deal with all this information coming at me and still feel okay belonging to this faith. And, and so like, like you mentioned, I think it's fairly common for, for many of my friends to get to maybe that like 17 to, to 30 timeframe and then start hearing about all this. And, and during that time frame, uh, you know, people would have all these crises of faith and they would talk to me about it. And I'd be like, yeah, this is what I was dealing with when I was 10. And, you know, I kind of had to come to, uh, a place where I felt okay about still belonging to this faith at that point. And so uh, because of that, I think there was, it got to a place where, you know, the interesting part for me was dealing with that from such an early age. It's doubtful to me that some piece of information or some accusation about that faith thrown at me would really throw me into a feeling of crisis just, just from how long I'd been dealing with that from so young. Interesting. Okay. That's wild. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I, part of that for me was th- coming to a place where, yeah, there's a lot of this that, that my dad is saying that I don't get it. If it's true, then that sounds awful. And, and there is this feeling that like, I don't get it now. And I'm, uh, you know, based off of some beautiful spiritual experiences I've had, um, I'm just going to stay 
in, in this organization and then figure it out when I die. And I, I don't know that that's uncommon among, among those members of the faith that, that you just say, look, I don't get it, but I'll figure it out once I'm dead. No, it's not uncommon. <laughs> and that has always, <laughs> that's always been a little bit concerning to me. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think that there are, are actual leadership quotes saying, you know, just, just stay in this until you're safely dead, which is such a, I don't know, it, there, there's such an opportunity it, to live that seems missed in that. Well, yeah. And that seems really concerning. It's, yeah. it's like, don't, <laughs> don't, it's like, don't question us. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, safely that's dead not thing a good look. <laughs> okay, we're back. Sorry, guys. We paused for a second there. Uh, I'm sure you heard the beautiful bird in the house, but uh, we we put we put him in his own little room now. So yeah, my apologies. I tend I tend to tune him out. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, continue. Um, where were we? Uh, so I think I was just coming to this idea that, like, you know, a little bit um, not based off of any kind of new fact or something that I had discovered, uh, and so. I, I think that over a significant period of time, maybe like a decade or so, the the turning point throughout that decade, I guess, is, is what I would point to, was much more about what I discovered I did believe in than the things that, uh, you know, anything that might have been thrown at me that threw me into some kind of crisis of faith. Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting because I feel like I come from a similar perspective. Like, a lot of people... I think leave the church when they start to hear weird stories about like the history and those things. Um, you grew up already knowing it. And then um, as I mentioned previously, I left without really even diving into that yet. I've, de- I've delved into it a little bit more post um, post leaving, but um, that sounds interesting. So what exactly was your uh, transition out? It sounds like there wasn't a, similar to me, there wasn't like a specific turning point you can think of. No, there, there really wasn't. And uh, there are certain points that certainly, you know, maybe aha moments, I guess I would say, that uh, really cemented certain fundamental ideas in my head. Uh, I, I think the first one that I can point to, and kind of interesting to me because I actually don't really identify with with Christianity as it's often seen, I guess, uh, with, with the worship of Jesus per se. Um, but the first the first thing that cemented this for me was was a book by C.S. Lewis, uh, who, who I still am a fan of. Um, it's called The Great Divorce. And in it, his have you have you read that one at all, Allie? Uh, I have not, but I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit what it's about. It's it's a it's an interesting one. He's describing the divorce between heaven and hell, and and in it, he takes the most non dualistic uh, Christian perspective on things that I've ever seen. And so, maybe I'll start with this idea that that the dualism for those that that haven't um, explored this is this idea that there are uh, fundamentally opposite forces that exist, um, light and dark, good and evil, heaven and hell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and his was the first time that I had seen someone try to take on the Christian faith in a non-dualistic perspective. And he did it from this idea that uh, what we think of as good is that which exists. And the more uh, 
of that, of, of general goodness, of joy and peace and love that we step into, the more that we step into our own existence. And the more that we walk away from joy and we choose um, fear and, and hatred and corruption, that kind of stuff, um, the less that we step into our own existence. And so he creates all these visuals of these individuals choosing not to exist in their own space um, and just becoming smaller and smaller and smaller through these individual choices they're making um, until there's really nothing left of them. And when you take that perspective, suddenly instead of this like axis of war between, you know, good and evil and light and dark and everything else, you create this picture of the beauty and peace of existence itself uh, and, and our choice as to whether we want to step into that existence or not. And, and that has been something that has resonated. I think, I think that was maybe the, the biggest thing that I can point to in terms of things that resonate with me. Um, and then just exploring what it looks like to exist in peace and love and, and joy in every single present moment, uh, instead of being concerned with this ongoing war of, of good and evil and heaven and hell and everything else. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, I, that, I feel like that would resonate a lot with me as well. Cause um, my, my transition out was purely out of feelings of negativity and so it sounds like he discusses um, less about good and evil and more about um, just living your pure truth. Yes. Uh, and, and this idea that there is pure truth that just exists, you know, according to this, this philosophy, uh, and that we all have pieces of it and we're all sort of discovering what that is. Oh, I love that. So um, when we were talking earlier, we had, or you had sent me like a little document you had created. (laughs) Tell tell me about that. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of an interesting one. And I think that it really encapsulates a lot of this next, I think this is a perfect time to bring this up because it encapsulates a lot of this next um, few years for me, you know, starting down that road, my thought was, okay, so if that's the case, if, if that resonates so strongly with me that instead of this idea uh, of dualism of, of God and the devil and, and everything else, uh, that we have this idea of peace and love and joy in, in existence itself, um, then then from that context, what do some of these terms that are often thrown around, what do they mean from, from that perspective? And one of the things I think I found for myself, uh, anyway, through that journey was that a lot of these terms are, there is this innate, beautiful, existing concept that we all yearn for. There's this, there's this natural yearning for that which exists and, and to understand it. And then side by side with it tends to be an egoic equivalent this idea that like the only thing in, in a non-dualistic perspective that's at risk of, of death is our ego. And, and so because of that, you have this fascinating interplay between this, these beautiful, peaceful, joyful, true concepts and their egoic equivalent. 
And so I think that's a lot of what uh, this document that, that you mentioned, um, I've called it uh, coming to terms, uh, which is my my little play on coming to terms with how I feel about the universe and existence and, and life in general. Uh, and and you, if you look through it, one of the, the, the patterns that you might see as you go through some of these terms that I've outlined here is that I'll, I'll try to define or my own interpretation of, of what this, this term could mean. And then I'll usually um, put another one that's sort of its egoic equivalent. So if we uh, look at, for example, you know, this, this topic we already covered of, of existence being light, life, truth, kindness, etc., then dualism, the idea of light and dark in this constant struggle against each other, would be its egoic equivalent. It would be it's fragmented. If you take that single beautiful truth and you break it into two things, that would be dualism. That would be the egoic equivalent of existence itself. And so I, I just go through a lot of these different things. Uh, you know, I, I, I talk about a little bit about heaven um, with, with this idea of, of heaven being stepping into this, the state of being in this existence of, of light and truth and love and joy, what, what more heaven could there possibly be? And, and it's egoic equivalent being this idea of like uh, paradise prison uh, is a common one that we, we hear in some of these mm-hmm. uh, faiths being that fragmentation. If you break that, that existence, that beautiful pure existence in two, now you have a fragmentation version where some people get to go to this, beautiful place and some people are, are damned to the horrible place. Um, and, and it's fascinating. It, it, so that's kind of the pattern that I've, I've set up through all these terms is, is looking at what does like a pure, beautiful concept of, of some of these terms mean? And then what is the egoic equivalent that we often see associated with it? I like that. Um, let's, I mean, are there any that, well, well, there's some that um, like stuck out to me. Uh, yeah, I'd love to explore with the ones that, that may have stuck out to you. I think that would be really fun. Yeah. So uh, one of them being um, sin, for example. Like, love it. Um, you have written here, the choice to minimize one's own existence through greed, corruption, violence, dishonesty. Yeah to minimize your own existence. That's really interesting. I, it, that sounds a lot better than just being like, Oh, I displeased, um, this man, right. this guy. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Uh, so, so yeah, to me that, the, the, the beautiful concept to that there is that in every present moment, we have a choice to magnify and step into our own beautiful existence or to kind of close down. Um, and, and to decide that we're going to step away from, from our own existence and become smaller and smaller, you know, coming back to uh, this idea from C.S. Lewis that you just kind of shrink and shrink until there's very little left of you. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you can see some of that with, with people around where they have just made so many choices that have minimized their own existence through corruption and greed and everything else that there's so little left. Uh, and, and it doesn't mean that in a moment, they can't turn that around and step and choose to step into their own existence. There's no judgment associated with that. But it is a fascinating idea to me to to take this fragmented, like, like you were saying, the fragmented idea is that there is uh, some being out there that is 
saying this is good and that's bad and and you don't displease me and whatever. And the beautiful one to me is is this idea that it's just choosing to be, you know, in in our own life, in our own joy or not. Well, and what's so lovely about that to me is it's complete it's complete autonomy. Like you're doing this for yourself rather than doing it for somebody else. Hundred percent. And and I think that that is that is going to be a common theme throughout all of this is is this idea that the fragmented egoic mind wants to create this other this other thing that you either have to please or you have to whatever you have to be fearful of um and and the to me these beautiful truths really center around finding yourself and and loving yourself and just enjoying being who you are another and going off of that another one that um has always interested me um and really anyway modesty <laughs> all right because let's do modesty, then we'll modesty get into it. <laughs> modesty has always been so geared towards women and that's always been so frustrating to me i remember um in my household my brother he you remember chris he um he was on the podcast anyway he he never wore a shirt from the time he was like 15. He, Chris is, <laughs> just, he just doesn't wear shirts. I love this. <laughs> and he would go around the house and he'd go outside and mow the lawn and like, but I wasn't even allowed to wear a tank top. And for some reason it was okay for Chris to be shirtless, completely mm-hmm. shirtless, but right, I right. couldn't even wear a tank top. <laughs> and, right. um, that the first, I mean, it's always been frustrating to me, first of all, the like, just such a huge discrepancy between men and women. But then also, everybody has a body. And like, if I love myself, what's the problem with like, showing it off? And um, so let's see what you have written here was, uh, you have modesty living in such a way that objects uh, the, the, the objects like uh, the, the, the objects I own, wear, or desire to own or discard do not distract me from my ability to see, value, and love those around me. Oh, that's yeah. so great. Tell me about that. Thank I love you. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, to me, this, this concept, the potential for what modesty is, is so much simultaneously less arduous and also bigger than than what than what I think I was uh, raised to believe. Um, and I think that, that a lot of that goes back to this idea. That you'll see that the one right under that is chastity. And, and sometimes it's easy for me to see it in context of chastity. Um, so, so the idea in religious circles often of chastity is this idea that uh, you, you are showing your, your sexual purity, um, you know, your, your devotion to your religion and your God and your faith through, through, the subversion really of, of your own sexuality, uh, you know, to, to shroud it in piety and, and puritanicalism. Um, and, and so to me, uh, modesty is often the physical representation of that idea of chastity as the, the way that it's commonly taught. Um, and so as a physical representative of, of, you know, a, desire to subvert your own sexuality, the way that modesty comes out tends to be some sort of like skin to clothing ratio. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> like I've got 98% of things covered in a way that subverts my own sexuality. Uh, yeah. And therefore that's what makes me modest. Um, it, that, that, I, I may not be right about that, but that's the way that I kind of saw it. Well, yeah. Like, that seems to be the way that it's uh, done like in, in our church or in Mormonism anyway. Yeah. And I don't want to speak for everybody on that, especially in religious. Like I, I certainly don't want to uh, assume that, that that's how it always is. But but to me, that's how it felt. And and so if we step away from that and, and we take chastity as this idea of using sexuality in a way that enhances your own psychological health um, and, and creates joy and love and peace in the world and just focus on that then modesty then kind of takes a different form and, and it can, and it can take this form that, that we see here of instead of a, of a skin to clothes ratio. Instead, we look at everything that I want, everything that I have and, and do it in a light of, does this distract me from my ultimate desire, which is to be in love and to, see others as they are and, and to see the potential there and to love those around me. And so, you know, if, if I, if I am wearing a really nice suit and I love the way that it it makes my butt look, and that's all I can think about as I'm walking around, like, are they seeing how cool this suit is? And, and because of that, I can't see the tears in the eyes of the girl next to me because I'm so worried about whether she sees how cool this suit is, then that's less interesting to me. And it's, and it's less modest. And it, I think it takes on some fascinating aspects like like where we see examples of modesty and immodesty, you know, seeing examples of, of those that, uh, you know, um, are are in different like indigenous areas and that kind of a thing yeah, where they're complete, yeah. completely nude and completely modest, like just seeing each other and loving each other. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is always, that's been kind of a fascinating concept for me too. Like with, um, I was always a little bit confused too with like the tattoos and everything because there's indigenous cultures that that's really part of, uh, that's part of everything. Like it's really important to them to get these these tribal tattoos. Um, It represents their family, their culture, their history. And part of modesty growing up was no tattoos, sure, um, no piercings, right, that right. kind of thing. So um, I, re- I love the way that, that you put that, putting it, it almost sounds like, um, like it goes in with humility. Yeah, it's very, very tight. Um, I, I would say humility, again, correctly, from my perspective, I guess, uh, correctly understood, right? As in not, not some sort of like devotion to some other being, but humility in terms of that which um, allows us to all see each other with love uh, and, and you know, without this sort of arrogance, I guess, uh, and ego associated with the way that we see each other. And I think that that brings up a really another fascinating element of, of modesty, which is, you know, um, the idea of seeing something that you may want in somebody else, uh, some sort of car or clothing line or whatever, and becoming so obsessed with the thing that they have that you can't see the person that they are, um, or or vice versa. You know, taking you know owning some of this stuff, and you you pass by somebody on the street, and because they don't own the same level of things that you have, 
um, you can't see the person that they are. You can't, you, you know, it's inhibiting your ability to love. Yeah. yeah. I completely agree with that. No, I love that. Um, what's an, what is a one that maybe has one that you look back on like daily? I, I think that, that maybe there's, there's two sets here that I think I'd love to, 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 I, I tend to look back a lot on and, and would love to dive into. Um, the first being this, this set of, um, a little bit farther up, you can see the divine and the idea of God and the devil. Yeah. Which is a fascinating one to me. Um, the divine being the non-dualistic look at it, right? So if you don't split out what God is, if you don't try to fragment it and externalize it, and you just say the divine is that which is the creative force, that beautiful, that source of existence itself. And so instead of um, something else that is guiding everything and, and watching over everything and, and, and you know punishing everything and whatever, um, you have this idea of existence itself being its own creative force. I'm sort of fascinated with that idea because it is the that intersection of the things that I think fundamentally I believe in and, and, and just from an experiential place have come to believe in, which is this idea that, you know, when I look around, there's just the best, the best point that I've ever seen those in the Christian faith make is that when I look around, there's so much beautiful beauty and order and um, art and love and things that would be hard for me to, um, see coming from just pure randomness and chaos. And so it just from that sheer fact, looking around and seeing the beauty and order and, and math and, and art and everything else feels like there's, there's a creative force behind it. And so the tendency that I think, you know, once you, once you've seen that and once you take that on, the tendency is to want to externalize whatever that creative force is say that, well, if there is a creative force, it must be somewhere out there and it must be judging everything. We must be all subservient to it, et cetera. Right. And, and instead the thought here, uh, at least according, you know, within this, this, these terms is to instead say, if, what if, you know, a more Buddhist, I think, uh, take on it, which is this idea that the creative force, the divine is all that exists. It's this idea of, of joy and peace and, and everything, all of existence wrapped up in itself. And, and it doesn't need to be anyone else, but it also doesn't need to be chaos and randomness. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated with that idea and, and taking away this idea of the dualistic God and devil, the external, you know, the, the, the wonderful one and the terrible one. Um, and instead just jumping into this idea that, you know, one of the one of the the, uh, the other works that I'll quickly say um, really had an impact on me um, was called "Living Buddha, Living Christ" by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's one of my all time favorite authors. He's a he's a Buddhist monk and an author, and uh, he he dives a lot into this, and he goes through the actual. Um, the actual quotes of, of Jesus in the new Testament. And he takes out everything else. And I, I, would never tried doing that up until the point when I read his stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. First off, just to see a, a Buddhist monk, take a serious look at the new Testament and see what they think, uh, a non-dualistic view of this. 
Yeah. But but what it turned out was that the, the Jesus that is directly quoted and the Jesus that is then interpreted by his own followers is a vastly different belief set from from my perspective and from from his in this work. Uh and and so, you know, through that idea you start to get this look at a Jesus that is saying things like I am. And, and then his followers who then take that up and, and, you know, form this perspective of I am and you are not, but Jesus isn't actually saying that he's simply saying I am, and I would that you would be one. Uh, interesting. And, you know, this, this idea of, of heaven on earth and, and all these things. And, and so if you just read, those quotes. Now, I think it's hard because everything that we have that was written by, or that was said by Jesus was written by one of his followers. So that makes it hard. But even so, looking at some of these quotes from a Buddhist perspective was really, really fascinating. And, and it comes back into this idea of, of this idea of the divine being this idea of I am. And, and Christian, those in the Christian faith often use that term, but, but I often feel this undertone of, uh, he is, and I am not. Yeah, I, I, I feel that as well. And, and so to me, stepping into this idea of I am and not worrying about the he is and I am not part uh, and, and just becoming one with the divine and the creative force and joy and peace and love in, the, in, in existence itself has been such a beautiful journey for me. Um, and I think really what has has allowed me to kind of step away and not really associate myself with any particular uh, organized religion or anything like that um, or, or organized idea of dualism or of God and the devil or of any of that and just step into, let me just explore existence and peace and love and joy and, and see what becoming I am and becoming one really looks like. And what does that look like for you? Like when, you know, I'm guessing then you don't pray to any type of entity um, or, or do you like, what does it look like for you to sort of worship at this point? Oh, awesome. Love this. This is, this is a perfect subway segue. I, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so, so a couple of these terms on here are, are directly associated with that. So, you know, if we look um, a, a, about two thirds of the way down, there's this concept of prayer, which I have come to believe, you know, if we, if we read it straight out, it's this, this idea of connecting with the divine. Um, I call it like mental defragmentation, which is this idea that like my ego wants to separate me from, you know, become my own little fragmented thing and instead taking on this more holistic one, oneness type of a, a mentality through mindfulness and meditation, really connecting with the divine um, within all of existence, within myself, you know, finding that joy within me, seeing the beauty and the love of, of everybody around me, all of existence. That to me is, is, is like this, this beautiful concept of prayer. And and you mentioned this other word, uh, worship, or or what I call supplication, office, uh, uh, alternatively, being this fragmentation, this this egoic pair with prayer. Um, this idea that I subvert myself or supplicate before some other being uh, it, it, 
in creating this connection. And I do want to be clear that I think that through prayer, a lot of people do through, uh, through prayer. Um, and you can include some of this worship and supplication and still very much have these beautiful spiritual experiences. And I think that that was a very solid reason why I stayed with uh, the LDS organization as long as I did was these beautiful, um, prayerful experiences. But the realization that I could maintain those experiences, uh, maintain this idea of prayer in the way that I was coming to see it in, in, in just in terms of mindfulness and connection with myself, with existence itself, with the divine, without the elements of, of fear or um, greed or supplication or worship mm-hmm. was so much more I powerful. Like that. Without the elements of fear, that to yeah. me is key. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the part that we don't want to say, but there's so yeah. much fear done out of fear. <laughs> there is fear of, you know, you did something wrong, fear mm-hmm. of what's going to come next. I don't mm-hmm. want to be alone when I go through mm-hmm. this thing. Um, and, and I think that in many ways that can be, it's obviously extremely comforting. Um, but for me, that's been a really difficult transition to feel like I don't have this deity with me anymore. Yeah. So like, how, how have you come to terms with that? Cause you say that, you know, that it's been really beautiful for you to figure out how to, um, learn to this supplication without maybe praying to a single deity, but how is, how have you come to terms with, with that? Like how, what does it look like in practice? I should say. Yeah. Love that. And I think you bring out some really, really important things right there. And some things that I, I do want to briefly mention um, felt very connected when you were doing some of your previous con, uh, podcasts with Chris, um, uh, with the with your friend, uh, uh, Fresh King Benjamin. Um, there were some really interesting elements that I think might be interestingly common with a lot of these uh, journeys. Um, one of them that I noticed being a feeling of, of chaos. I think, I can't remember which one of them brought that up, but that resonated with me. Um, and, and it's going to sound a little bit overly dramatic, but I don't actually have a, a better way to describe this other than uh, the, the hard part for me was this underlying feeling of galactic chaos. <laughs> Okay, and, and I'm aware of how like, <laughs> like nerdy and and, uh, and dramatic that sounds, but but this but idea it's a thing. I mean, yeah, I think right? many of us have felt it. Yeah, right. Okay, all right. I, I've never. I mean, I've never talked about it, but that was a real feeling of mine. That like in my mind, all you know, for the first couple of decades of my life, there was some all powerful being who was just very carefully ensuring the order of the spinningness of the, of the different planets and the, and the, and the galaxy and everything else. And it's sort of like becoming aware of your own breathing for the first time where you're like, Oh my gosh, what happens if I don't take another breath? Um, there's this kind of similar feeling there where like without this concept of an external being, uh, carefully guiding all these things, suddenly I'm, I just become, very cognizant of the spinning globe through space in this just, you know, random gravitational uh, pole that just 
and and you know outside of that the, our, our own solar system inside of its galaxy that just are all spinning together and, <laughs> and colliding in this massive galactic. suddenly there's oh, this realization the of all that oh it's so big inside of me and i think that like that by itself probably about six months um it, it took like it, it took me through this like six to eight months probably of feeling constantly sick to my stomach like being on a roller coaster just feeling that that careening through space um and feeling how small you really are yeah it it felt very like small and out of control and everything else and i think that a lot of working in this space of mindfulness and joy and peace really helped me to deal with some of that and to come back to a place where i feel centered and i feel uh calm and peaceful I would say with the exception sometimes of when I'm asleep, sometimes when I'm asleep, like I'll wake up and have that same feeling. But when I'm awake, typically like it just feels beautiful and calm and peaceful to me now. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so happy for you. I'm still (laughs) working for on that. (laughs) Obviously this is part of my journey, but yeah, that's that's why I love this because I love to get everybody's perspectives. Yeah. And I don't think there's any way around it, frankly. I don't think there's any way to, shortcut it i think that those that go through this journey are sort of like that this is part of it and it's a it's a hard part but but i will say that like that the element of of becoming one with myself and with existence and everything around me has been such an incredibly worth it experience for me that i wouldn't give it up but it was really really uh tumultuous inside of me for for a while there sure well uh before we end, I mean, we've this has felt so short, honestly, but we're pushing 40 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. But um, I uh, like what what recommendations would you would you give listeners who may be going through a transition or a faith crisis? I mean, you've mentioned a couple books. I'll link those in the show notes. Um, but and you mentioned mindfulness. Is there anything else that you would um, recommend to anybody who might be going through something similar? Um, yeah, maybe to to go there, I'll I'll bring out one last term here, and that is grace. And the way that I have looked at this from a beautiful ter- concept for me. Um, under that term is the space to be human and be okay with it and the space to smile kindly at our own imperfection, at the imperfection we see around us. It's beautiful. And uh, for those that that are, are going through any of this, I think that this concept above all others, to give ourselves and everyone around us a little bit of grace to be imperfect and to be struggling and to not know if we're doing the right thing. Uh, a little bit of grace goes a long way is all, is all I'll say with that. Uh, and um, th- there is a book uh, by, by Nezra Zabian called Welcome Home that I would also recommend. And in it, she describes building a home for yourself. There is somewhat of a feeling of homelessness associated with this journey. 
for the, especially for those that whose family is very involved in, in some kind of faith. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and learning to build that, that, that feeling of home within yourself is imperative, at least in my experience. Um, she does a great job. She does a, a masterful job and much better than I could ever do uh, of describing that. So I would recommend that for anybody going through this. Um, but yeah, build, build a home and give yourself and others a little bit of grace as you go through it would be my, my thought. That's beautiful. I love it. Um, that's the concept that I try to live by as well is, uh, and, and it's been difficult for me. I think that in um, specifically in Christianity and probably in other religions as well, but we have this idea that of perfectionism and um, you know, you have to be perfect, but you know, you're always forgiving others. Like <laughs> you can forgive others, but we're really hard on ourselves. So giving yourself grace is, is huge. Working on giving myself the same grace I give other people. So. I will, I will lastly say if I can, that, uh, I've been so impressed with the way that you have taken this on, Allie. Um, Thank you. It, be, it, it, it becomes so easy to become bitter and, and vengeful. And every time I listen to the, what you're trying to do here, you're trying to connect and create safe spaces and, and take everything that you're learning in a way that will help people's lives and your own and reconnect with everybody in a loving way, despite the underlying tones of, of the reality of feeling hurt growing up um, in different ways and that kind of thing. We're aware of that, but, but your decision to still take this on in such a positive direction and try to find how you can help others through it is very, very impressive to me. And I, I'm, I'm, I've been so impressed with that, Allie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm blushing. Well, now everybody can hear you praise me. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. Well, thank you for your time today. We've got like three minutes till this thing kicks me off. So um, perks of being on a free account on Zencaster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um I guess we'll stop here, but thank you so much. And um, I, I mean, I'm sure my listeners will be thrilled to hear this. So we will talk again soon and appreciate you being on here. I really appreciate you having me on, Allie. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs>